0: So the, the, the poll question today is, who's your favorite character from the Lord of the Rings? So if you don't have one, you can just sit there and, and, and tolerate me for a few minutes. Anybody have a favorite character from the Lord of the Rings? There's a lot of them. Tell me. Samwise. Samwise. Okay. I'm getting a nod here. Okay. Any different ones? Aragorn. Aragorn, Okay. It's a great character. Any others? You like them all. Any Frodo fans? I mean, no? Oh, we got a, oh, we got a visceral no back there. Okay. Well, so, so Samwise Gamgee is my favorite character, too. And the reason he's my favorite character is because he is so dedicated to Frodo. He's such a faithful friend. He is like what everybody should have in a best friend. And even when Frodo is horrible to him, he's still there like a rock and he's just solid and he's just supporting the mission and he's doing everything to help his friend. He just loves him. And so what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about today, right? This word faithful is my focal point. The word faithful is the focal point. Let's look at chapter 2. Let's go back to last week's lesson for just a moment. And in verse 35, 1 Samuel 2, 35, God says through his prophet to Eli, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. So what does a faithful priest do? A faithful priest is obedient to everything God says. That's what a faithful priest does. And what he's saying is, Eli, you were not a faithful priest and so your house is being rejected as servants of the Lord because of your unfaithfulness. But I'm going to raise up a faithful priest, and in the near term, Samuel, and in the midterm, Zadok. and in the long term, Jesus Christ, the ultimate, faithful priest, the one that does everything that needs to be done exactly the way God wants. He's faithful. And this concept of faithfulness is, is a really important one in these chapters, and we'll just see as we go through how this faithful priest plays out and how um, Samuel is now called by God to do his work. So um, the, the homework for last week was to do kind of a comparison between Isaiah 6 and 1 Samuel 3. And rather than taking time at the front end of the lesson to like walk through that, we'll we'll just kind of do it intermittently as we go through 1 Samuel three, um, and hopefully that'll that'll work out um, the way. I'm hoping that'll move things along a little bit more, rather than take a lot of time here at the beginning. So let's let's read now in um, verse one of chapter three. It says, now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So coming right on the heels of talking about this new faithful priest that's coming, what do we see Samuel doing? We see him faithfully ministering. We see him continuing to serve God. We had seen in prior verses in chapter two, we had seen that he was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. He was ministering in the presence of the Lord in another place. And the boy, Samuel, is ministering to the Lord. So this is is the activities that are going on, ministry activities going on in the temple, in the temple area. And the the setup for this is in the evening, verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, I'm wondering if he had cataracts and things are closing in on him, I don't know. So that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the Ark of God was. So Samuel is either has his like bedroom either in like the holy place, like next to the Holy of Holies, or in the courtyard just outside of that. Um, he's in that temple complex. We're not sure exactly how many rooms might have been built around the, the tabernacle. Um, apparently at this point the tabernacle had some walls and it's being called the temple of the Lord it's not the same as Solomon's temple which will be built um, you know 100 years later or something like that but that's the the place where this is happening and this word boy in verse 1 is is used in other passages to refer to a young teenager so we saw in the beginning of 1st Samuel that Samuel as a very young child is dropped off at the temple, and Eli becomes his guardian, effectively, um, a foster parent. And now we see that some time has passed, and um, Samuel is, um, is there in and around the temple. Uh, Josephus um, wrote, you know, a thousand years later that Samuel was 12. So I'm assuming that he was capturing oral tradition at the time, um, but take that for what it's worth, I guess. So the, the, the time period that we're dealing with is, we're given a little hint here. It says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So it's at night, the lamp inside the holy place was lit every night before dusk, and it would burn until dawn. And so it had not yet gone out, which means that it was near dawn. So this is most of the way through the night that, um, that this event is occurring. And then we see God now calls to Samuel several times. So, if I could have a reader read for us verses 4 through 10. 4 through 10. Someone help us out. Hutch, thank you.
1: Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me, but said I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called him, called again Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But he said, I did not call. My son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, "Here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the Lord. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lay down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel
0: said, "Speak, for your servant hears." Uh, thank you much. So we see the Lord calls to Samuel four separate times here. Three times Samuel goes and talks to Eli. The fourth time is when Samuel connects, and we'll we'll see that in a minute. So, what what observations do we have about Samuel from this this passage? What traits do you see about him? Touch.
1: Yes, right. So he's obe- obedient,
0: he's attentive to what he perceives as Eli calling him. Anything else? Yeah. Interesting, that, you know, it said
1: that Samuel, Hero was living with Eli, Eli's a priest, and he'd been with him a while, and he did not know the Lord. Um, you wonder if, if Eli had been talking about the just going on his,
0: his background. Hmm. Yeah. Verse seven says Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So if he was twelve, and you know we don't know exactly how old he was when he was dropped off, but I mean, and how old would you start to understand even things about the Lord? But let's say five, he starts to have a cognizance of, of you know, being able to learn. So for seven, eight years he's been in and around the temple, and he's seen all of these procedures and he's learned what a priest does but what has he learned about God it's not that he didn't know about God it's just it, it it doesn't appear that he had a personal relationship with God at this point it's not that he didn't believe in God from the standpoint of God exists and that's who we're serving it's not necessarily the conclusion you have to draw from this but the, he had not had a personal experience with God like he's about to <laughs> for sure and so it does, it does raise a question, Is like, what's Eli doing? And, you know, I don't know what he's doing. It, it's hard. It's easy, to, it's easy to criticize Eli. You know, there's, there's a lot there, but anyway. Do you have another, something else? Okay. It's like an auction. I yeah. thought I saw a hand. I, I think it's, this is a, a stark contrast that we're given here. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Now, compare that back to chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And it's just period. It's not, it, there's no yet there. They did not know the Lord. Samuel didn't know the Lord yet. He was about to. So, the third time this call happens, Eli perceives that God is at work and God is calling to Samuel. And, you know, some people have criticized Eli for being slow to understand that God was the one that was calling Samuel, but, I, you know, look back at verse 1, it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. So this, you know, God, you know, speaking audibly to people, you know, didn't happen every day in the Old Testament. And at this period of time, in this dispensation, the, the, the way in which God was working with these people, he was not audibly speaking to people all the time. So I I think that would be an unfair criticism of of Eli. And then look at it from God's point of view, his persistence in calling Samuel. He just didn't call him once and say, hey, he didn't answer. You know, that's it, I'm done with him. I'll move on to my next one. He calls to him over and over and over again, waiting for a response, lovingly, patiently, kindly, because he wants to use this boy he wants to use him for his work. So now we get to, um, we get to see that Eli perceives it, and he, says to, he instructs Samuel. So he is giving some instruction now, and he says, go, go back, lay down. And if he, if he calls you, here's what you say. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Be ready to listen to what God has to say. What great advice from a spiritual mentor. When God is speaking, you should be listening what a great way for us to approach God's Word, whether it's devotionally for ourselves or when we come together to to learn or we hear the preaching of God's Word, is this ought to be our attitude. God, I am ready to hear what you have to say to me because you're a personal God and you will use your Word to speak to our heart through the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 10, something a little different is, is mentioned here than the other calls. It says in verse 10, and the Lord came... New words, and stood. In the other instances of God calling, it just says God called. And so you can kind of picture Samuel laying down, and this voice comes like from the Holy of Holies kind of thing, right? And that's kind of what we're imagining. We don't know that. It doesn't say that exactly. But that's where the presence of the Lord was to be. And now it says he came and stood, calling at other times Samuel, Samuel. Samuel. I had always thought of Samuel's um, interaction with God as just being purely audible. I, I'm not sure that it may have been audiovisual. <laughs> it may be that this was a theophany that, that Samuel it doesn't tell us if, if Samuel could see the Lord there or if the Lord was just there and um, not being seen. We're, we're, not, we're not told completely there. But what we know is that God approaches his servant and calls to him. So here's, here's one thing I, I identified as a difference with Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees a vision, and his vision is of the throne room of God. And he sees all of this, and he hears everything going on around him. But it appeared that, that Samuel was essentially hearing. I, I don't know what... He, whether he was seeing the Lord or not. But it, it doesn't appear that he was seeing the throne room of God. We're not told anything like that. So there's a difference. Anything else people pick up on differences with Isaiah 6? Or similarities? So Verse
2: 10 says that the Lord came It sounds like Isaiah, when the Lord comes, and the the visual part I never thought of before, but standing, seems like that has to be a person, because the spirit doesn't
0: stand. That's good. That's, That's true. Yeah. That's good. If you dig into Isaiah 6, and you go back to Isaiah 5, you see that the context of Isaiah's vision is that God is about to announce judgment on Israel. So here's a similarity. God is about to announce judgment on Eli. So both of these calls involved God saying, I'm about to do something pretty big uh, from a judgment standpoint. All right, let's keep moving. We Could have someone read for us verses 11 through 14. This is what God has to say to Samuel. 11 through 14. Yep, David.
1: then the lord said to samuel behold i will do something in israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle in that day i will perform against eli all that i have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end for i have told him that i will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them And therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever.
0: So here we see God announcing um, judgment on Eli and Eli's house. And the way that God explains this is that he's going to do something shocking. He says that the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is going to rattle people. This is going to be... A pretty um, shocking thing. And what was the reason that's given here for God's judgment? What is this? The specific sin that's identified? His wicked sons. That's right. He knew what his sons were doing, and he didn't restrain them. And God said, this is blasphemy. When you think of blasphemy, what do you normally think of? So, like, what would be an example of blasphemy? Taking God's name in vain. Okay, taking God's name in vain, saying that Jesus isn't God. That's like the most fundamental blasphemy there is, right? I mean, that's like misrepresenting who God is. So, what are we learning about blasphemy here? Is that the way that these two priests, Hophni and Phineas, were conducting worship was misrepresenting who God was to the people, and God is saying that's blasphemy, And I take that seriously. Like, whoa. Our worship is important to God. It's important that we represent properly and accurately who God is. And there's lots of different forms of worship today, and I'm not here to say that ours is right and everybody else's is wrong. That's not the point at all. The point is that when we worship God, we have to be doing it for his glory and not for our own pleasure. And that's what these guys were doing. They were conducting themselves for their own benefit in multiple ways. Then in verse, verses 15 through 18, we see that the next morning, Samuel gets called on the carpet by Eli. and Eli says, you know, you've got to tell me everything. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. This is what makes me think that he may have been sleeping in the, the holy place. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Well, yeah. I mean, a 12-year-old having to say to your, you know, your guardian, your foster parent, your father figure, God's going to judge you and your house. That's like, you know, how could you say that as a 12-year-old? Especially a respectful 12-year-old, which he appears to be. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, well, what, what, what does Samuel say? He says what he always says. Here I am. I'm ready. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm I'm ready to serve. And Eli said, "What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you." So so Eli like virtually threatens him with this curse. So Samuel told him everything. It hid nothing from him, and he said, "It is the Lord let him do what seems good to him." This is quite a response from Eli. What is Eli saying in effect? Can you put it in, like, your words? What's Eli's response in your words? I missed part of that.
1: God is always right.
0: God is always right. Good. Hutch. Yeah. So what kind of... um, character trait would we attribute that kind of statement to? Humility. Humility. And what kind of attribute of God would we connect Hannah's comment to? God is always right. We call that God is sovereign. God's sovereign. He's saying God is sovereign. What else does he say? He says, let him do what seems good to him. He acknowledged that God's the one that determines what's good in our lives. He acknowledges that God is good. He's going to do what's good. He determines what's good. So so these two concepts, I think sometimes people think they collide, but they actually work so well together. God is sovereign and God is good. And in his sovereignty, he makes his goodness known to us. If we could make this real practical... Let me back up one step. This is the kind of thing that makes me say, maybe I've been too hard on Eli in the past. <laughs> because this is, this is a statement about from a person who knows who God is. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is good. He knows that he's a sinner and that he has sinned and he deserves God's judgment and he humbly accepts that. How hard would that be? Knowing that it affects your family. It's, it's like, it's one thing to, to judge me, but to judge my children too, even though my children were the, you know, the root cause of this problem. But something I think we could take away from this is how do we handle bad news? Have you ever had someone come to you and say, I have bad news? I hate that. <laughs> I've had that happen to me a couple times. I've, I've told people where I work, If you've made a mistake, don't come and tell me I have bad news. Just tell me what happened. We'll fix it. Because when people say, I have bad news, my heart drops, right? And I start thinking the worst. And it's like, just just tell me what happened. Samuel says to Eli, I have bad news, Eli. Here's what God said. And how does he react? God is sovereign and God is good. And I accept it. Wow, if that's how we could react, if that's how we could, if we could know our God well enough that that was our natural response to, to any kind of news. The heart of the man that fears God doesn't fear bad news. Trust in God instead. All right, let's keep moving. We'll see in these verses that God now establishes Samuel's ministry. Verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. This is kind of like an archery metaphor. So an arrow that doesn't make it to the target falls to the ground. And what you're saying is, what, what God is saying about Samuel is, he made sure that every arrow word that came out of Samuel's mouth hit the target. It was all accurate. He didn't let anything he said drop. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So here we see at the end of the chapter, the Lord is appearing. The Lord is speaking. His word is being made known. Compare that to the first of the chapter, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God is changing how he's dealing with his people here. And he's doing it because he has a faithful servant to do it through. In in the the first part of chapter 4, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So God starts to establish his, his ministry, and Israel knows his reputation, and God is active. We move on to chapter 4, and at first blush, it feels like these chapters are disconnected because chapter 4 starts three a three-chapter segment of the book that has a focal point on the Ark of the Covenant. But what it's really doing in chapter 4, what the writer is doing in chapter 4, is finishing the story about Eli and his family. And he kind of has to give some setting about how it happens before he can actually get to the time of judgment, which is in the end of chapter 4. But what we've seen so far in this book is that God has blessed Hannah's prayer for a son. She's, he's blessed his sac, her sacrifice of him to, to ministry, and he's sovereignly chosen Samuel to be a judge, a priest, and a prophet. He's blessing faithful people, not so with the unfaithful. All right, so we will see now the judgment of Eli and his, famuel, and, and his family. Another little note here is that Samuel isn't mentioned for like almost three chapters now. It's kind of interesting. He's like the first major character of the book. And yet there's this parenthetical that happens here where he's not even not even mentioned. All right. So um, verse 1 says, And the word of the Lord came to Israel. Now, Israel went to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battle, on the field of battle. So we see this first battle and Israel is defeated handily by the Philistines. 4,000 Israelites die. Think about that. That's a lot of people you think about you know battles that we hear about today you know when when our troops were in afghanistan if there was a day where you know you hear about 50 men being killed there, you know there'd be you know the media would be going crazy and and rightly so that's you know loss of life of 50 people but here 4000 people in one day that's it's really quite a defeat so the elders of israel try to um where are we going they try to rethink their strategy, and they say, we need to take a different approach. And that brings them to think about the Ark of the Covenant. So verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come, come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So what's their, what's their rationale here? You know, what, what's the, the, their thinking about employing the Ark as, as part of the strategy? Hutch. <laughs> it is kind of a lucky charm approach, isn't it? Yeah. Like, if we bring this object to the battlefield, we win. Take it another step further. It does, it does say that they realize the Lord, in, in the middle of verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today? They realize that the Lord was the one who defeated them. The Lord was fighting against them. So think about this thought process. So if the Lord was fighting against us, how are we going to fix that problem? We'll go get the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll bring it to the battle. And somehow God is going to fight for us now? This plays right into the lucky charm theory here. What exactly are they seeing as being God? Is this like the golden calf, where Aaron said, Israel, behold your God, that they're looking at the ark and saying that this is the equivalent of God himself. Also in verse 3 near the end, it says, um, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power. Um, uh, The ESV Bible, I think, has a footnote here that says it could be translated he. So it's not completely clear if they were putting all their faith in the object, or they thought that by bringing the ark here, God would have no choice but to defend the ark and to win the battle for, for them. So if we bring the ark to the bat- battlefield, then God will be there, and God will fight for us instead of against us. Now, bringing the ark to the battlefield, is that unprecedented thinking? I'm getting a no over here. The wall. That's the one I thought of, yeah. So in, at Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, God tells the people to march around the city, and he says, take the Ark of the Covenant, and it's going to go near the end of this parade. There's going to be a rear guard after that, but the, the Ark went out and went around. I couldn't think of any other examples of that, um, where the Ark was part of the, the battle, um, but that was certainly one. So I I just wonder if, you know, they're sitting around thinking and somebody says, remember that story of Jericho? They used the ark there and it worked pretty well. Why don't we try that? You know, you can kind of see how they might get there, you know, if you're trying to be really charitable in your view. But they're rethinking their strategy here. The problem with this is they're assuming that God essentially can be manipulated into doing what they want. The problem is that in the Jericho situation, God told them to do that. In this situation, they're not asking God and God's not telling them. God is completely out of this picture except as an object that they want to manipulate for their benefit. So just an application point. How do we pray? Do we pray like the Lord taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, thy kingdom come? Or do we pray, you know, Lord... I'd really, you know, we want to have a picnic today, so I'd really appreciate that it don't have any rain. You know, okay, I I appreciate that. How do we pray? Are we trying to manipulate God, or are we trying to do what he wants us to do? I love how the writer describes the ark. Verse 4 it says, um, they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. That's the commander-in-chief name of God, Jehovah of the Hosts of Heaven, the one that is in charge of the armies of Heaven, who is enthroned on the cherubim. He's ruling. He's the king. He's enthroned on the cherubim. And then we see some foreshadowing. Hophni and Phineas are there. No idea if this was their idea or if they were at the first battle. Um, It appears that they supported the strategy, however. Second battle is worse than the first. Um, Verse 5, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp, and they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Let's pause right there for a second. So so the so Israel was joyful, that was their reaction, and the Philistines are fearful, that's their reaction. too far and and the philistines have heard some of the things that god has done in the past but they don't quite get the story right 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 where i stopped there verse eight these are the gods who struck the egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness so they're kind of like convoluting things here god struck the egyptians with plagues in egypt and he finished them off in the wilderness but the the plagues weren't in the wilderness so they go on to say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they, they rise to the occasion and they, they fight again. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of the God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So we see a really um, difficult, difficult situation. The second battle is first than the worst, then the first. <laughs> the second battle is worst than the first. There, spit it out. All right. So now comes a messenger to tell the city about, um, about the battle. Yeah, have someone read uh, 12 through 18. 12 to 18. Ty, thanks.
2: A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat Your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his (laughs) neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years.
0: So here we see the obituary of Eli, essentially. The messenger comes, tells The city, the news, they cry in um, grief and then he comes to tell um, Eli personally, the national news, Israel has fled in great defeat, Uh, personal news, your sons are dead and the spiritual news, the ark has been taken. And it's the news about the ark that really startles him and he falls backward and breaks his neck and sad, sad conclusion to this man's life lived 98 years and um, had the privilege of being put in the, the ministry of the priesthood and comes to this end. Next section of verses is more family story, verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of, of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The focus of Phineas's wife, unnamed here, is mostly on the ark. That the ark has been captured and the glory of the Lord has been taken from Israel. Another sad um, conclusion for this family. So what do we learn about God here? A few things in application as we close. God is looking for attentive followers who listen to him and obey his word. He didn't have that in Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. He wanted that, and he went and he found it in Samuel. Another is God does not tolerate blasphemy. This this world says all kinds of things about our God, and our God in heaven, it's not lost on him. He knows what people say, and he's not going to tolerate it. There is a judgment coming, and it's going to be worse than what we've read about today. And then third, God will not be manipulated. God is sovereign. He's in control. He is good. But he is not going to be manipulated even with with objects that he has used in the past. The ark was an important object. It was created by God with a lot of symbolism in it. Um, the the homework for next week is to do a little bit of background reading on the Ark of the Covenant because the next two chapters that we'll deal with next week have a large focal point on the Ark. We learn a lot about it um, and God's relationship with that piece of furniture. Um, So the the questions for the, the homework are what are the physical components of the Ark? So this is just more read the text and list them out kind of thing. The next two questions are much more thinking kind of questions. What is the practical purpose of the ark? What was its use? What was it used for? And then the third, what is the significance of the ark? Um, why have an ark at all? Why is it even there? So we'll, um, we'll talk about those things. I'll commend those to your, to your reading. So it looks like we have about one or two minutes left. Any comments or questions?
1: How long it is from the time Samuel tells him that he, well,
0: no, that he was uh, going to be judged until he was judged. Do you have any idea? Not really. No. So, we, we, so one thing that gives us a little bit of a timeline um, with Eli is that in chapter one, he sees Hannah and misinterprets what she's saying, but he has enough vision that he can see her like her lips moving, but no words coming out so and then in in chapter three it it says that his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and then in chapter four, it says he's he 's blind so, so how long that process took i don 't know It says he's ninety eight here. Um, the speculation is that Samuel is twelve in in chapter three. so the time elapsed here. I'm thinking could be 20 years, but that's really conjecture. It's, I, I don't know for sure. But, but so there's, there's an interesting point there. It's like God gave this prophecy through this prophet to him. There's time passing. God gives prophecy through Samuel about judgment on Eli. Time passes, and then the judgment happens. It, it doesn't happen, boom, boom, boom. And sometimes we think, you know, well, if God's so offended, why doesn't he just judge him? Like, why doesn't he just pull the plug on him? Well, we know the answer to that, right? It's Exodus 34, right? God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, he's steadfast in love. Praise God that he's slow to anger. (laughs) Otherwise, none of us would be sitting here today. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you are a gracious and merciful, slow to anger, loving God. We're grateful to know you. Father, we want to be faithful servants. We want to worship faithfully. We want to give a proper representation of you through our worship, both personally and corporately. So we ask for your help. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in us today to do that. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.